Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Britain has one of the oldest systems of government in the entire world. But nobody sat down and planned that system. It's composed of numerous bits and pieces cobbled together over hundreds of years as the need arose. I'm John Burko, and for 10 years I was the Speaker of the House of Commons. I've seen our system of government at its best and at its worst, and I'm fascinated by who gets to operate the levers of power and what people do with them. In this series, with the help of Deborah Francis White, I'll be looking at different aspects of our modern democracy, how they began, how they work, and how much influence each of them has. And we'll try to answer the question, where does power really come from? This is Absolute Power. Hi there, this is Tom. We've put together a special episode to mark the end of this series. Now, you may have found Brexit was noticeable by its absence over the previous 10 or so episodes. Now, this isn't because of any hugely controversial shock around John's views, but there was just too much good stuff on it, and we didn't want other topics to be sucked into its centre of gravity. We kept the clips, though, and when we finished the series, we realised that a compelling narrative had formed almost entirely accidentally giving a behind-the-scenes view on how Brexit had happened from its conception to its denouement. So, in this first clip, a discussion about how backbenchers' attitude to whips have changed over the years knocked our preconceptions and gave us a view as to why it was incumbent on David Cameron to call an election. Where would you put the whip in terms of influence in British politics? Where do they sit on the scale from basically irrelevant to absolute power? I would say that they are somewhere between 70 and 80% effective in getting their way. But at the risk of providing a rather serious answer to your question, it is a matter of recorded fact that the incidence of intra-party rebellion against the whip is much greater now than it was decades ago. In other words, you sometimes hear people say, well, of course, in the good old days, in the golden era, you had these wonderful, free-thinking, independent-minded members of parliament, usually of private means, who weren't influenced by considerations of ambition or even particularly of party loyalty, but were motivated by a desire only to do the right thing and to speak and vote as their judgment decreed. That, frankly, is a myth. There was an era in which there were huge numbers of independently wealthy MPs who weren't particularly ambitious, but A, a lot of the time they didn't turn up, and B, when they did, they overwhelmingly voted with the party. The evidence also is that in the 1950s, there were whole sessions of parliament in which nobody voted against the whip, Mm. and... The reality is that since the 70s, 
the incidence of rebellion against the whip has greatly increased. And I remember that after 2010, the Conservative whips were absolutely shocked, shaken and shattered by the large number of new members of Parliament who customarily tend to be expected to toe the line and to aspire to be in the good books of the leadership and who want to progress, a lot of those people voted against the party on big issues in a way that thoroughly took aback the Conservative Whip's office. Specifically, I think of the occasion when a lot of new MPs voted for a motion calling for a national referendum on British membership of the EU. Now, whether they were right to do so or not is another matter. But it was quite striking that I think, if memory serves me correctly, way over 50 Conservative MPs who were new did that. And that was regarded as rather surprising. They voted against Brexit? Uh, no, not they didn't vote against Brexit. They voted for a national referendum. On Brexit. On Brexit. The term Brexit hadn't been coined oh, at that really? point. And at that God, stage... Happy, happy days. At that stage, 2011, the Conservative leadership was against having a national referendum. You might think that was a very sensible position, yeah. which is a pity that David Cameron subsequently resiled. But at that stage, David Cameron was very much against a referendum. The party in Parliament was advised to vote against the call for a national referendum, and most did, and the Labour Party voted against such a referendum, but a large number of Conservative MPs demanded a referendum. And what was particularly shocking to the Tory establishment was the number of new MPs who defied the whip and voted for the concept of a national referendum. It was what was called a backbench business committee debate. It wasn't an effective vote. The vote was still won by the government. Those rebels were really in a sense, putting down their visiting cards, if you like. They were giving notice of their future intentions. And a couple of years later, Cameron committed to a referendum, and then finally it took place in 2016, and the rest is history. But what so was really Cameron... significant about all that was yeah. these new MPs who, told by David Cameron that they should vote against having a referendum, effectively hit back and said, no, we want a referendum. referendum. This was regarded as shocking, and arguably discourteous. New MPs thinking for themselves, doing as they willed, ignoring the instructions of their elders and betters, perish the thought, but they did. Um, so, so ultimately, Cameron called the referendum and caused Brexit to get out of an uncomfortable Prime Minister's questions, basically. Well, I wouldn't say Prime Minister's questions. I think that he was very anxious about intra-party pressure mm internal Tory party pressure for a referendum, and he was bothered that UKIP was going to eat into the Conservative vote. And I think he thought that if he offered a referendum, that would be a way of outflanking mm -hmm. UKIP and diminishing its appeal to voters. It was a well. cack-handed and well. spectacularly ill-judged gamble. Now we're going to hear a little bit more from John about the personality, motivations and, let's be honest, hubris of the man most responsible for Brexit happening at all, David Cameron, and the lack of foresight in the way the vote was actually arranged. 
he seemed very confident he was going to win the referendum and didn't put anything in place that he could have done. For example, in Scotland, 16-year-olds were allowed to vote because it was their future. And now, obviously, 16-year-olds are working and have graduated university. He said, oh, no, it would cost a couple of million quid to do that. And then when you look at the price tag of Brexit, things like that where you just go, it could have been so simple to make that fairer. Um, in Australia, if you have a referendum, every state has to be 50%. Right. And I don't understand when we are effectively four countries, why England and Wales got to decide what happened in Northern Ireland, which is so much more uh, dramatic and salient for them, and why and Scotland, who just voted in a referendum to stay with us, but clearly wanted to stay in the European Union, why there wasn't some situation like that. He could easily have said, well, you know, there's precedent for that in other countries. Scotland's listened to us, we have to listen to Scotland. Why do you think David Cameron didn't take some kind of precaution like that? And why do you think he made it so simple as yes, no, when it wasn't yes, no? There were so many complicated factors. Well, there are a number of questions wrapped up in that. I mean, on the subject of the voting age... I think the truth of the matter is that the Prime Minister was complacent. I think he thought he was going to win. He was once asked, why do you think you're going to win? To which he replied, I always do. And do that does think... display a degree of complacency and arrogance. And I think he thought that if he gave the vote in the referendum to 16 and 17-year-olds, the read across to a general election would then become very compelling. In other words, people would say, well, if you've given it to 16 and 17-year-olds in the referendum, logically, it's only right that you should legislate for 16 and 17-year-olds to vote in general elections as well, to which most Conservatives are opposed. Why? Well, because they probably calculate that most 16 and 17-year-olds who vote won't vote Conservative. So I think that's why he resisted 16 and 17-year-olds. If memory serves me correctly, Deborah, I think the Liberal Democrats, in the form of a man called Alistair Carmichael, did move an amendment to allow 16 and 17-year-olds to vote, but with government opposition to it, that was voted down. On the subject of thresholds, that is to say whether there should be a threshold either nationally or in constituent parts of the UK, again, I think it was complacency. I'm not aware, I don't recall this, I'm not aware that there was an amendment put down to impose a threshold requirement. A threshold would mean 55%, 60%, 65%, whatever, rather than just a simple majority. I don't recall that being put, but the government certainly didn't argue for that and didn't appear to give any thought to that. And I suppose, again, it comes back to a sense that the Prime Minister had that because he usually won, he would. And looking back now, it does seem very strange. I remember not long after the referendum, Deborah, actually, I remember going to deliver a lecture at Sheffield University in the sort of latter part of 2016 on a subject completely unrelated to Brexit. And somebody in the audience asked me about the referendum and said, can I ask you, Mr. Speaker, why wasn't there a threshold requirement put in the legislation? And I said, Parliament didn't agree to one. And there was a sort of follow-up, I think, not from the floor, but in private conversation, wasn't it something that I could have pressed for? And I said, no, it's not something the Speaker could have pressed for. That really would have been taking a very partisan position, and there were arguments on both sides. I mean, do I think it would have been a good idea 
to have a threshold requirement. I do, because this is a major constitutional change. But Parliament didn't vote for such. And a threshold requirement meaning each country got a say? Well, it wouldn't necessarily mean that. It could just mean in the UK as a whole. But you could have a threshold requirement that said that in each constituent part of the UK, in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, a figure of 60% of the vote has right. to be in favour of Brexit. You could have done. I mean, Parliament can legislate for what it likes. If Parliament wants to legislate to prohibit, it shouldn't and it wouldn't and it doesn't and it hasn't done. But if Parliament wanted to legislate to prohibit people with red hair from voting, it could do so. It should so not, just to be very clear to our red-haired listeners. very clear to our red-haired friends. Easily. That would be arbitrary. And indeed, indeed, it would be a monstrous and egregious abuse of the human rights of those people, I say, listening to this podcast and not wanting them in any way, wrongly, and from my point of view, disastrously, to think that I have some animus towards people with red hair. Very far from it. I was simply trying to illustrate the point that Parliament could do what Parliament wants. Speaking of hubris, it's time to bring in some of the other main characters. Here, Don discusses the key leading figures of the Leave campaign, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson. He's not, he's not a likeable, warm man, is he, Gove? He can be friendly, but I tend to think of Michael in the same category as Uriah Heep. Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay. And in fact, I'm now and again reminded, though I should emphasise, there's no element of criminality on Michael Gove's part at all. I'm not going to make any such suggestion, but I often think of Trollope, and I think of that rather oily character in the Trollope novels called Obadiah Slope. Mm. And then I sometimes think Michael rather reminds me of young Slope. <laughs> um. What a name, Obadiah Slope. Obadiah I will Slope. never see Michael Gove again and not think of Obadiah Slope. Do you think that Gove and Johnson didn't want Brexit to happen and were just trying to get the UKIP votes? That's a very good question. In answer to it, I would say I don't think Boris Johnson was much fussed about getting Brexit. I think he was just fussed about getting the leadership of the Conservative Party. And I think he was actually quite shaken when Brexit came about, because had he given any serious thought to how it would be delivered or what it connoted and what the implications might be? No, I think he just wanted to be on the side that he thought would be popular with most members at the grassroots of the Tory party and quite a lot of Conservative MPs. And I think he thought, I, 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 if I become leader of the the, uh, what is my party? Conservative party. If I become leader of my my, my, my party, I think it's a rather popular, rather popular side with the view that I think it's quite widely held in, in my party that we should leave the European Union and probably sort of boost my boost my boost my chances of becoming leader. So I think that was his attitude. As far as Michael Gove is concerned, no, I don't think that actually. I do think that Gove is genuinely swivel eyed on the subject of the European Union. I think he has long been hostile to it. It wasn't the dominant issue at the time at all of the formation of the coalition government in 2010. Michael Gove wanted to be part of that government. He's an ambitious fellow. He was in with David Cameron. He had the chance to serve. It was only as we got 
much closer to the 2016 referendum that he probably thought he wanted to speak up for Brexit. Now, was that on an opportunistic basis? Uh, to be fair to Gove, I think that he genuinely believed it. I think he has long been, you know, a very strong Eurosceptic, as it used to be called, and became a Brexiteer. And David Cameron, of course, did say the government's not neutral on the matter of Brexit. The government's not neutral. The government is in favour of staying in the European Union. But in recognition of the fact that there are Conservatives, including Conservative ministers, with a different view, I, David Cameron, will say those who want to campaign for Brexit will be free to do so, including ministers. Mm. And David Cameron probably didn't expect Michael Gove to take him up on it, but Michael Gove chose to take him up on that offer of freedom. And my impression from the media is that David Cameron felt rather let down. He was saying ministers should be free to campaign for Brexit if they wanted, but I think he thought Michael Gove was somebody pretty close to him and that out of loyalty, Michael Gove would support him in making the case for staying in. The trouble is, if you give people a dispensation, you can't then very well object if they take advantage of it. And Cameron said, well, if ministers want to campaign individually for Brexit, they can, and Gove took the view, well, thanks for the offer, Prime Minister, I will. And the rest is history. So did he really want it to happen? Yes, I think he did really want it to happen. Dave but he had a different view of Brexit to, for example, Nigel Farage, So, and probably to some other Conservatives. I think Gove was always keen on quite a soft Brexit mm. and sympathetic to continuing membership of or a relationship with the single market and the customs union and so on and so forth. But ultimately, you know, Michael, I would say, is a sort of political equivalent of the Lloyd's access card. He is your flexible friend. Mm. And I think his attitude tends on the whole to be, these are my principles, but if you don't like them, I shall speedily devise another set. The next tragic figure to enter the narrative was none other than Theresa May. John and Deborah had differing opinions as to why she was doomed to fail. Listen on to understand why. The second part of Sculpture's question was, yes, if Theresa May had decided to stick it out through the crises, would she be in the same position as Boris Johnson? No, because if she had tried to stay in post, obdurately resisting the advice and requests of senior members of her cabinet and her parliamentary party, there would have been another confidence vote in due course. My view is that she would have lost that vote because I think there would have been a sense of real fury that she had not responded to earlier requests to step down, which was the authentic wish of a majority of the Conservative parliamentary party. However, there's a second reason. Even if stretching our imagination and thinking that she's some sort of conjurer or Houdini-like figure, mm. she had managed to escape. In other words, to go through that process and win again, I don't think she would have won another general election. I think that between 2017 and 2019, the public had seen too much evidence of her incapacity to deliver. And I think people who were pro-Brexit would have been feeling a complete lack of confidence in her, and people who are anti-Brexit would have felt a lack of confidence in her. And I think it would have been a case of both sides of the political divide, both sides of the Brexit divide, for different reasons, 
being again her. The Brexiteers, furious that she hadn't delivered Brexit and was then having the cheek to go into another general election. And the anti-Brexiteers thinking you were a disaster in office and we're not going to have you in office a moment longer. So but would I... she have won an election in the way that Boris Johnson did? No, I don't think she would. And the other thing is that, you know, whatever her merits, she's not, as she showed in 2017, she's not a campaigner. But But the irony is that... The deal that she put on the table that Boris Johnson blocked, he yes. then got a worse deal. Yes, yes, that is one of the. Why do people have confidence in Boris Johnson? This is the thing. Why is there not a no confidence vote in him when he is clearly a much worse prime minister, much more craven, much more? Yes, he did. He got a worse deal in the end than she did. But it is just a cult of personality, is it? It's but just I think that cult of personality. Like I think the fact that he's a bit, he seems to be in a some bit way or another. Blokeish. Yeah. A bit more relaxed. He can a bit make more jokes. Fun loving. People think they'd like to have a beer with him. Basically. People think they'd like to have a beer with him. And in the end, because the slogan was as simple as it was, get Brexit done, and a lot of people did think, well, it's got to be resolved, that was sufficient for him. I remember. But speaking, he blocked Theresa May getting it done. Yeah, he blocked and her getting it done. And then said, let's get Brexit done. I think all of those boys just didn't want to be the first Prime Minister to have to handle Brexit. And I think they directed a woman to the edge of a glass cliff and said, I don't know, I don't want Brexit, I don't want you touched it last. Yes. She then stood up and said, OK, yes, none I of the boys a, are willing to have it. I don't think it was it. a sexist construction. I don't think it started from the premise, let's get a female Prime Minister, see her fail, and yet, that's and what happened, benefit. John, isn't but it? That is what happened, yes. But I don't think it was done for gender reasons. My feeling I is I never that think you can unpick these things. I, none, of the boys, none of the boys wanted it, though, did they? Until we'd watched Theresa May well, the were it because boys, they wouldn't back Well, there her. were boys who wanted it, of course. When Theresa May became Prime Minister, Boris Johnson did put himself forward for the office of Prime Minister, as did Liam Fox, as did... I think a chap called Stephen Crabb. What happened with Boris Johnson, of course, was that he was knifed either in the back or in the front by Michael Gove. Oh, Gove right. was supposed to support him. Gove ditched him at the last minute and then paraded his own credentials in what was a pretty stomach-churning display. And it was at that point that Boris Johnson decided to pull out because he realised that without Gove's support and the support of people who would support Gove, he, Boris Johnson, couldn't win. So I don't think it's fair to say that the blokes didn't want it. I think the truth is Johnson didn't want Brexit. Johnson just wanted to be popular with the Tory party. When Brexit came, he didn't know how to deliver it. When Johnson saw that the May version of Brexit was unpopular with the party, Johnson shifted in favour of another type of Brexit. Johnson's position all along in everything is always what is going to advance the cause of Mr. Boris Alexander de Feffel Johnson. Any great consideration of the national interest, the primacy of principle, the sine qua non of the policy being that we must do what is right by this nation. No, what he's thinking is what helps me. What will get me in office, what will keep me in office, what will enable me to keep going as Prime Minister. That is the level at which he operates. It's very dispiriting that you say you don't think he's going to go quickly into the night, that he's going to hold on because he wants to be as powerful as possible for as long as possible. 
Uh, do I think he'll be there in 10 years' time? Mm. No. I don't think he'll be there in 10 years' time. And I don't think he's... I don't do you think he'll sense. win another election? I think there's a chance. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The next clip is taken from our episode on statutory instruments and how they were nearly abused by Theresa May in 2017 in order to push through Brexit, some might say, unconstitutionally. Statutory instruments have been described in the press as an unseen constitutional crisis, John. Do you agree with that? Do you think it's a constitutional crisis when these things are glossed over, laws are made in private after they've after they've already passed? It's a big statement. I'm not sure that I would go quite so far as to label it in those terms, but I do think it is a growing problem that a lot of detailed but significant points are incorporated only within statutory instruments of which most people are completely unaware. A good many of those statutory instruments are never debated by Parliament at all and democratically that seems undesirable. I can understand the argument that says there are only so many hours in the day, we can't debate everything in detail and in some cases we have to make a judgment about whether something is uncontroversial and doesn't warrant a debate and we might even discuss that informally between parties privately in the house and the conclusion is that this matter isn't particularly controversial and it doesn't warrant parliamentary time and it can be dealt with in that way however if it becomes a very 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 regular and commonplace practice the danger is that even if not deliberately inadvertently something will slip through that doesn't get scrutiny and proves to be flawed or to have an unjust effect. And if only Parliament had had the chance to debate it, that fact might have been discovered at an earlier stage. So do I think it is a problem that quite a lot of things aren't properly debated on the floor of the House or in committee and are just rammed through by governments? Yes. I also think it's a problem, by the way, and this is a wider and different point, but quite an important one, when the government has an erroneous idea of what constitutes a prerogative power. And very often the government will think something can be done under the royal prerogative, that is to say the exercise of prime ministerial 
power without the need for a vote in Parliament and can then be shown to be wrong. Now, what's the reasonably up-to-date exemplification of this, Deborah? The answer, in 2017, the government thought that it could pass legislation to give notice of the intention to leave the European Union and that that did not require a vote in Parliament. It could just be done as a prerogative act by the Prime Minister. Gina Miller famously objected to that proposition and took the government to court and she was successful because the Supreme Court ruled that the prerogative power did not apply and that if the government wanted to give notice, two years notice, of intention to leave the European Union, it had to do so by a piece of legislation that would be debated and voted upon in Parliament. So there, the government got its way, but the government was, in the first instance, contradicted by the courts. Theresa May thought it was down to her and she could do it on her own and she didn't need to consult Parliament. Gina Miller, public-spirited and fortunately for her, financially able to finance the case, said, that's wrong, that can't be justified, it's got to be done through Parliament, and the court found in her favour. Then, of course, as you will recall, if you press the fast-forward button, in 2019, Prime Minister Boris Johnson thought that he could prorogue Parliament send Parliament away for a period of several weeks in the run-up to the denouement of the Brexit negotiations. And that was objected to, again, by people like Gina Miller, but also by the official opposition and quite a lot of Conservative members of Parliament. The case went to court, to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court justices, of whom there were 11, voted the government down 11 nil on wow. that matter and said the government was acting ultra vires, that is to say, in breach of its powers. It was not a prerogative power. And at the end, Baroness Hale, who was the head of the Supreme Court at the time, said she looked now to the speakers of the House of Commons and the House of Lords to make arrangements for Parliament to return. So, of course, that day, I announced that Parliament would sit again the following morning at half past 11. So the government was, I won't say ambushed by the Supreme Court, the government was taken to the Supreme Court and, frankly, repudiated by the Supreme Court. That was an abuse of power. Did the government react with great good grace and magnanimity and say, sorry, we realise that we behaved inappropriately, we got this wrong. No, they fulminated against the Supreme Court. Wow. So, uh, But they were wrong and they were shown to be wrong. Now, in the end, of course, they forced an early election and they got the majority and they've gone ahead with Brexit and so on. But, you know, those questions of where power lies and who might be abusing his or hers are important questions mm. in a democracy. And it's in some ways reassuring that our Supreme Court will still go, absolutely not. You just can't do that. Yes. That there are people like Gina Miller uh, saying, you know, come on now, this isn't okay. Um, it's a pity that it requires somebody, I mean, I know Gina Miller well and she's a friend and an extremely 
conscientious public citizen. It's a pity that it requires somebody with resources to do it, but unfortunately it does yeah. because legal cases obviously are very expensive. So could the the average person possibly contemplate bringing a case like that against the government? No, although to be fair, I think on matters of very, very great public import and where there are divided opinions in the nation, the chances are there probably always will be somebody who is prepared to put the matter to the test. And in this case, it was Gina who took the attitude, well, I feel strongly and, you know, I am mm. fortunately in a position to do this and I'm going to do it. But the more power they take, the more it ends up kind of like a police state. And at some point it becomes dangerous to stand up to a government doing these things. So that's why we don't want them just taking all kinds of power. And these bills that are coming in, they're just taking all kinds of power. And at some point it is going to be dangerous yes. because you will be criminalised for standing up to the government. And, you know, if you think that can't happen in your country, go and talk to the people in Turkey who, you know, somebody I know who said, well, I always used to say he's taking too much power, we're going to end up as a police state. People say, don't be so negative, don't put that negative energy out there, of course we won't end up like that. And cut to, she went to prison because she was uh, a human rights defender. You know, it, so it's... it's You know, having balance in a political system and different repositories of power is very important. And if we get into a position where we don't any longer respect, for example the independence of the judiciary, that is a very sorry sign. And do you a think it's going that way, John? Worrying indictment. I do, because I think that the government is operating in a very populistic way, and it often thinks that it's got public opinion on its side, and it may have, or it may just have a very, very, very noisy and vociferous minority on its side and it thinks it has a right to have its way and that anybody who gets in the way must be brushed aside and that seems to me to be quite dangerous Could let me put it to you like this i was very upset on behalf of my parliamentary colleagues in the last parliament when on more than one occasion the front pages of newspapers included pictures of judges who were rubbished by those newspapers as being enemies of the people. Mm. And on another occasion, when a number of dissenting Conservative MPs worried about Brexit, either opposed to it altogether or opposed to the form of Brexit they thought was going to happen, were pictured as though they were public enemies. And the government didn't seem at all willing to speak up either for the judges doing their duty as they saw fit or for the right of MPs to make their own independent judgment about matters and to speak and vote accordingly. And so the government should have said, hey, no, this is the normal course and even if we don't agree absolutely. with those judges, yeah. we don't put judges' faces on the front absolutely. and say, and I well, they are in trouble for doing their job. Absolutely right. And I remember at the time, I felt very strongly about it, I don't recall referring to her at the time because I was more concerned about speaking up for the people doing their duty. But I remember at the time thinking that it was extremely disappointing when she was Lord Chancellor that Liz Truss, who had a relationship with the legal profession and should be expected as Lord Chancellor to champion the role of the judiciary, was not prepared to criticise the media for depicting these judges as out of touch, you're a file, 
enemies of the people. All she was interested in doing was saying, well, it was incredibly important to defend the freedom of the press. And my answer to that would be, yes, but. Mm. In other words, yes, the freedom of the press is important, but so is the freedom of the judges to do their constitutional duty. Mm. And if you, the Lord Chancellor, can't bring yourself explicitly to say, yes, they should be free to do their duty without vitriol, abuse or harassment, that is sad Mm. and bad. Mm. And it's libelous to say they're enemies of the people when they're simply saying, no, the Prime Minister just can't send everyone off on on half term and then make one of the biggest decisions that has ever been made in this country to change the course of its history. No, we can go there and we have gone there, but it has to be done properly. And in the end, it has been done, but but it wasn't able to be done well, Boris Johnson said, do you, do you all just want to take a quick break? Why don't you go have a Kit Kat? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, well, no, look, I've done it. I've done it. You don't even need, guys, don't even need to worry. Yeah, go away for a few weeks. That's not okay. No, and it so wasn't okay at it, all. And, and of course, it was nonsense on stilts for the government to seek to con people into thinking that the prorogation of Parliament was merely the prelude to the introduction of a Queen's speech. In other words, that it was the prelude to a new parliamentary session because ordinarily the prorogation before a new parliamentary session prorogation means bringing one session to an end and opening a new session with the queen coming and a what did the queen think of all law. this do you think and normally that period would be very short this was a proposed five week prorogation so it clearly wasn't normal at all mm. it was absurd for the prime minister to try to pretend otherwise what did her majesty think well to the very great credit of her majesty we don't know but what do because you think? she's never said. No, I just think it's you can't. very hazardous territory. I mean, I must say, I've always respected the fact that Her Majesty the Queen has not just implicitly, but explicitly, without any nods or winks, to give an indication that she's on one side or the other. She has avoided all of that. I think both implicitly and explicitly, she is non-partisan. And whatever views that she might have she might communicate to the Prime Minister of the day or not, as the case may be. She probably does if she feels strongly about something and not if she doesn't. But has she ever given any public indication of a view about that matter? She hasn't. And I don't cavil at that. I don't, you don't think you can... That. Can you... Because you know her, do you think you can read her sometimes, even if you, you're not prepared to say what you read? Well, I wouldn't claim to know her very well. I might think now and again. I suspect that... That look on her face means... That doesn't constitute approval. (laughs) I might think that, but I might be wrong. I couldn't possibly say. And the next two clips are about how the levers of power actually operate. What happens when informal power comes up against our unwritten constitution. More recently, we've had an almost unique phenomenon, and it happened towards the end of my tenure, when, because the government didn't have an overall majority, non-government parties sought my agreement to seek to disapply the standing order that gave the government control of the order paper. I allowed them to have that opportunity to put that proposition to the vote, and that vote passed. And therefore, what happened was that non-government MPs 
took the chance to introduce a private member's bill, namely the EU Withdrawal Number 2 Bill 2019, which became the EU Withdrawal Number 2 Act 2019. And the purpose and effect of that measure was to prevent a New Deal Brexit on the 31st of October 2019, unless the House had specifically voted for it. Now, the government was infuriated by that measure, but it was the will of the House, and then of the House of Lords, that it should pass. Now, that is, in my experience, a completely exceptional use of the private members' bill Mm. procedure, but it is a fact. It did happen. The government didn't like it, but it was the will of Parliament at the time. The clerks in the House of Commons are guided very substantially by precedent and therefore they are not naturally, I don't say this disobligingly, I think factually, inclined to innovate. They tend to work on the basis of that which has happened, Mm -hmm. what the previous record has been, what are the precedents. And so now and again, in answer to your point, was I told, well, you can't do that, Yes, in later years, mainly in later years, mainly at the time of Brexit, there were a couple of occasions on which it was put to me, well, I don't think you should do that, Mr. Speaker. And I remember saying in one instance, why not? And the answer came back, well, no Speaker has ever done that because a motion such as this is normally expected to be taken, that is to say, subject to a vote forthwith. And I said, well, that may ordinarily be the case, but we are in unusual times, and these are exceptional circumstances, and an amendment has been tabled to the said motion, which I fancy has a lot of support, and in relation to which I think the will of the House Mm -hmm. should be tested. And I'm inclined, therefore, to select that amendment and allow it to be voted upon. And part of my reasoning was that there may have been a convention against such motions being allowed to be amended, but it wasn't an absolute rule, point one. And point two, what I thought was different, Deborah, was that the government by then did not have an overall majority. And so I thought, let's see what the House wants. So I selected the amendment in question. The clerk of the House accepted my decision, although I think he honourably disagreed with it. The government chief whip was incandescent with rage about it and berated me in the chamber with some force and at some length, which was of no concern to me. And the matter was indeed voted upon. And the amendment in the name of the right honourable and learned gentleman, the member for Beaconsfield, Mr Dominic Grieve, was passed. So I felt that I'd actually got quite good antennae for what the House wanted. The government wanted to close down and wanted me to close down that opportunity and simply to allow their proposition to be immediately put to the vote. And I thought, well, no, there is a credible amendment. Let the amendment be put. And if it's defeated and then the government's motion is passed, fine. But did I feel that I was doing violence to parliamentary procedure? I didn't, but it was an innovation. Mm-hmm. And and I think I said, well, manifestly, if we were guided exclusively by precedent, nothing would ever change. And do you think sometimes civil servants feel it's their job 
to make sure nothing ever changes. And that's why we're stuck with some things we've had since the 1300s. Well, I certainly think that long-serving officers of the House, deeply versed in procedure, often feel that it is safer, I think that's the way I would characterise it, to stick with what has previously been done. My listeners who are of mature years might recall there was once a great row in the Thatcher government about the influence of a particular advisor, Sir Alan Walters, who was her personal economic advisor and who took a different view about shadowing the Deutschmark to Chancellor Nigel Lawson. I'm delighted and, to say I don't remember anything about this because I was a child and living in Australia. Right. Well, she famously said, advisors advise, ministers decide. <laughs> in other words, well, just as I've said, you know, advisors offer their advice, but in the end, it's ministers who make the decisions. So I felt that when clerks now and again said to me, oh, I don't think you should do this, don't think you should do that, don't think this urgent question is really urgent, don't think you should select it, don't think it warrants the time, they were absolutely entitled to speak up and speak out and say what they thought. But in the end, it, it was, was my on choice. your head. It was on my shoulders. Finally, we'll touch on a fantasy scenario. What would have happened if Brexit had gone slightly differently and what it would have done for John's career? Thank you so much for listening to this series. It's been, for me, enthralling, mind-bending and optimistic doing it. An experience that has, to be honest, reaffirmed my love and passion for British politics despite all its many flaws. Deborah and John will be back soon. Thank you so much for listening and bye for now. Did you ever want to be Prime Minister? No. Would no. you, if you were offered the job, if the political genie came out of the bottle and said, you could be prime minister and it, I'd, I'll arrange it, it'll be democratically elected, don't worry. Uh, although I'm a genie, let's get past that part. Uh, would you enjoy being prime minister, do you think? No, I don't think so. I loved being speaker. I found that the most extraordinarily stimulating and rewarding role. I never, ever aspired to be prime minister. In fact, I remember once saying to a friend in my youth when I indicated that I wanted to go into politics, he said, do you want to become prime minister? And I said, no. And he said, in that case, I don't see the point of going into politics. And I said, I completely disagree with that view. There are eminently good reasons for wanting to become a parliamentarian, to influence a particular area of policy, for the stimulation of representing people, to champion principles that are dear to your mm. constituents or to you or to your party. You can want to perform any number of different roles in Parliament without having any great aspiration to be Prime Minister. And indeed, in some cases, there are people who would not be prepared to be Prime Minister. I remember it being said at one time that there was a little effort in the Labour Party to persuade Alan Johnson to put himself forward to succeed Gordon Brown as Prime Minister. And I think the truth of the matter is that Alan just wasn't interested. He felt that he'd contributed and served in Cabinet at a high level and found it very stimulating. But either he didn't think he was equipped to discharge the responsibilities of the Premiership or it just didn't appeal to him. So, Why doesn't it appeal to you? Does it just feel like so much work and flack? Enormously and demanding. Responsibility. It's a huge responsibility, a much bigger responsibility than being Speaker of the House. And... I just wouldn't have expected it. There was a little bit of chatter at one point towards the end of the last parliament when there was no overall majority and there was some speculation as to whether a government of national unity might be formed that could command a majority in the House of Commons. And 
whether the leader of it would be Jeremy Corbyn or whether because some Labour MPs wouldn't vote for him, whether it might be Margaret Beckett or Ken Clark. And I think in a couple of newspaper articles it was suggested, or it could be the Speaker, you know, and it would be a very, very, very short-term administration simply to hmm. get through the Brexit period or whatever. Did I ever take any of that seriously? No. You know, at that time, did it seem like a minuscule possibility? Minuscule possibility not but if it had been visited upon you even for a short term what would that have been like suddenly in number 10 and having to make decisions and work 20 hours a day or whatever absolute (laughs) nightmare whereas this prime minister is ravenous for the acquisition and retention of power and clearly very much enjoys disporting himself in the public sphere occupying that role i certainly would not have done would i have relished it or wanted it no i mean if i'd been really keen to be in with a chance of becoming prime minister, I would have tried to stay on the conservative front bench and work my way up the greasy pole and so on. The truth of the matter is that when I was in those front bench positions as a shadow minister, I didn't particularly enjoy it. I served under leaders that I didn't especially admire, none of whom I could remotely envisage becoming prime minister. And I thought, well, whilst discharging these front bench duties as a shadow, and a shadow is very different from being the minister, I'm sacrificing the freedom to contribute on other matters as a backbench MP, which I'd frankly rather prefer to do. And eventually, when I left the front bench for the last time in 2004, I resolved, well, I'm not going to come back again. I don't want to come back as a shadow minister or a minister. I'm going to devote myself to being a backbench parliamentarian. And one day, I'm going to try to become speaker. But did it at any time between 1997 and 2019 occur to me that it would be great to be prime minister. No, I was really happy to hold the post that I wanted above all to hold, which was the post of speaker, and to do it to the best of my ability for over a decade. You have been listening to Absolute Power with me, Deborah Francis-White. And me, John Burko. Recording facilities were provided by Spiritland, and the music was by Hannah Ledwidge. The producers for The Spontaneity Shop were Ned Sedgwick and Tom Selinsky. Absolute Power is part of the ACAST Creator Network and the House of the Guilty Feminist. For more information about this and other episodes, visit absolutepowerpodcast.com. Listener.